Well, once again, uh, we've come to the end of the liturgical year, and once again, the church places the end of the world before our eyes. And uh, once again, I remind you, even though it's an intrinsically exciting topic, we don't ever want to get sort of a chicken little, the sky is falling, uh, kind of a tizzy fit when we think about it. Remember that God loves us. He wants us to become saints whenever we live. And he knew when we were going to live from all eternity. And so the important thing is not so much when in history we live, but how we die. The important thing is how we die. If we die in the state of grace, then we're saved. We're here to become saints, okay? So before we get started, let's have a quick review of what a type is. Remember what a type. A type is a person or a thing or an action that actually exists, but it's also intended by God to prefigure or foreshadow a future person, thing, or action. Again, a type is a person, thing, or action that actually exists, but also intended by God to prefigure or foreshadow a future person, thing, or action. Almost everything in Exodus, you can look at that way, just for one example, manna, the bread that came down from heaven and, and fed the, the Jews as they're wandering to the people of Israel, as they're wandering through the desert for 40 years every day. That really existed, really fed them, but that is a prefiguring or foreshadowing of the heavenly bread that comes down from heaven in the new covenant of our Lord uh, in the most blessed sacrament. That's, that's a type. The, the man is a type of the blessed sacrament. That's just for example. Okay. So much for the introduction. We'll turn to the topic at hand. And following the lead of Cardinal Newman, we'll consider uh, uh, the prelude and, and, and uh, a type of, uh, of the uh, great apostasy that has uh, foreshadowings of the abomination of desolation. Remember in the great apostasy, when we're looking in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, St. Paul talks about, when he's talking about the end of the world, that first... This great apostasy, this great falling away from the faith has to happen. And then in that context, Antichrist comes. So today we'll, we'll consider the prelude and some of the actual events of the French Revolution, which is a type of the great apostasy and certainly has many uh, very profound foreshadowings of abomination and desolation. Again, for the sake of time, I'm going to cut, splice, edit, and, and paraphrase some of the quotes just so that we can get through it. So uh, that being said, let's start... First, by considering the atmosphere and the church and the society and the time leading up to the revolution, prior to the revolution. And the, the cultural atmosphere in France prior to the revolution is in a, in a process of, of decay. With the terms of the church, they've been uh, afflicted for over a century with a heresy known as Gallicanism. Now, just really quickly, I'll go through what the four principles of Galicanism were. First, and this had been condemned by the Holy Father, but in first uh, principle, in temporal things... Rulers are not subject to the church. So that would have played out like, excuse me, Mr. Pope, but don't you tell me whether a war is unjust or not. I'll make the decision myself as the ruler. Second, the power of the pope is inferior to that of a general council of the church. So, you know, this would be like appeal, excuse me, Mr. Pope, you're, you're contradicting the council. Uh, that would be Gallicanism. Third, the pope must exercise his authority in accordance with the rules, the constitutions, customs of the church in France and not vice versa. So in other words, he has to get his mind right. So excuse me, Mr. Italian Pope, or whoever you might be, that may be how you do things in Rome, but that's not the way we do things here, that, that sort of attitude. And then, and fourth, the decisions of the Pope are not seen to be final or obligatory unless the whole church adopts them. And that might play out like, excuse me, Mr. Pope, but that's not the experience of the whole church. Uh, most of us just don't accept humana vitae. So all those things would be examples of, of the Gallican thing, uh, attitude. That's Gallicanism. Then there's Jansenism, another great heresy. 
Uh, Jansenism is just basically, without being unfair, you can think of it as a Catholicized version of Calvinism. Jansenists didn't see our Lord as a God of love and mercy, but rather like a God of rigor and harshness. This ends up, you know, distorting him into sort of a monster. Because what happens is the result, on one hand, the average guy gets discouraged because it's just too dang hard to keep up when God's going to damn you to hell anyway, so why not just give up and party? That, that's one result of, of this kind of real rigorous type attitude where everything has to, you know, is like that. Since God doesn't, you know, you know, here I am. On the other hand, the people that actually do manage to keep going with this sort of cosmic bully wind up like the Pharisees and, and end up in spiritual pride. I can't believe how all these heathen people are behaving and so forth. For example, the Jansenist nuns of one convent in France were described as being, quote, pure as angels and as proud as devils, close quote. Now, by the way, if any of us ever have this kind of temptation, the way to fight him off is to say to yourself something like this. Hey, look at this guy. You know, look at all the graces that I get, and I stin all the time. And if I were to be, the, if I were that guy, I'd be worse than he is. And if he were me, he'd be better than I am. And that's the attitude we have to have with people. You know, it, it, otherwise, instantly you're going to go off into spiritual pride if you see people that are misbehaving all that. We want to pray for them, but we don't want to get up on our high horses and start imitating the Pharisees. Okay. Anyway, liturgically speaking, the Jansenists, just like the Calvinists, wanted to simplify things. Take, for example, the decisions of the Council of Pistoia. It's a local council held in, in 1786 by bishops in North Italy under the influence of Jansenism. Now, this council was condemned by Pope uh, uh, Pius VI. So what did this condemned Jansenistic council command? Well, the bishops ordered the destruction of statues, destruction of side altars, destruction of relics. They forbid traditional devotions, and they got rid of Latin and made Italian liturgical language. Another author describes the situation uh, under Jansenism in Austria. Quote, the spirit of Jansenism caused infant baptism to be delayed until a later age when the child could understand. The solemnity, beauty, and poetry of the liturgical actions, chants, vestments, and setting were taken away from the Mass. The ceremonies were done in German. Laws of fasting were reduced or done away with. The clergy were dispensed from daily reading of the breviary. Devotion to the Blessed Virgin all but disappeared. It was combated by new-style theologians who denigrated what they called misplaced enthusiasm for Christ's mother. Even good Catholic families gave up saying the rosary together, and it was thought quite extraordinary when a priest was found in Vienna who would bless and distribute rosary beads and encourage people to use them. Close quote. So that's Jansenism. So you get an idea with Gallicanism and Jansenism, what sort of atmospheres in the, in the church in France right there. Another aspect of, of what's going on in France before the Revolution that we have to take a look at is, is uh, Freemasonry. Now, of course, that was uh, really the latest flavor in the 18th century. And uh, so we shouldn't be surprised at all about this. The late great Jesuit Father Cahill, quote, It is now an established fact, insisted on and emphasized by Masonic writers, that the French Revolution was prepared and plotted by the Freemasons, that to them also were due its horrors and fierce anti-Christian bias. Close quote. Pope Leo XIII explains what the Freemasons were hoping to accomplish by the Revolution. Quote, The utter overthrow of that whole religious and political order of the world, which Christian teaching has produced, and the substitution of a new state of things in accordance with their own ideas. Possessed by the spirit of Satan, whose instrument they are, the Freemasons burned like him with a deadly 
an implacable hatred of Jesus Christ and of his work, and they endeavor by every means to overthrow and fetter it. Close quotes, the vicar of Christ. Cardinal Rodriguez of San Diego, Chile, gives details on the specific goals of Freemasonry. Quote, the plundering of the property of the church, separation, church and state, expulsion of religious orders and congregations, laws of civil matrimony and divorce, compulsory public education, prohibition or restriction of public worship. Close quote. Now, all this being said, then we have one of the most single, most unbelievable acts of misgovernment in history. In the hopes of making peace with Masonic rulers in Europe, in 1773, Pope Clement XIV suppressed the most powerful defenders of the papacy, the most aggressive foes of Gallicanism, Jansenism, and Freemasonry. The Pope actually suppressed the Jesuits. Instead of using them to attack the forces of hell, the Pope actually surrendered, dismissed his army, and flung open the doors of the church wide open to the enemy. One author summarizes the results of the suppression of the Jesuits. Quote, it left the enemies of the church exultant and emboldened to make more insolent demands. It meant the closing of the Jesuit colleges, which were the main scene of Catholic education and scholarship the world over. It dealt with what was virtually a death blow to many flourishing missions built up by the fathers of the Society of Jesus in Africa, America, India, and Asia. Parenthetically, I mean, from Paraguay to Arizona, you had the reductions. Bang, it's all gone. Uh, thus, in many places where the church had made the most promising beginnings, the natives fell back into paganism, close quote. The world has not recovered from this decision. We've never recovered from that decision. The Jesuits were gone by order of the Pope, yet Gallicanism, Jansenism, Freemasonry were alive and flourishing. Voltaire was absolutely delighted by the suppression of the Jesuits. Now, for the younger people here, if anyone isn't sure who Voltaire was, this guy was an evil genius, an absolutely diabolical Freemason who more than any other man created the atmosphere around so, in which so-called progressive thinkers that have this contempt for God, contempt for holy things, contempt for religion, contempt for the Catholic Church, contempt for priests and bishops and the Holy Father of the Pope, contempt for the sacraments. As one author says, quote, Voltaire was the missionary of the devil among the men of his time, close quote. Voltaire played the same kind of role in his day that men like Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and Daniel Dennett are playing today, right today. These guys promote atheism not by arguments. They don't have good arguments. They don't really care about the arguments. They produce, they're little Voltaires. And they produce atheism, they're promoting atheism by contempt. They pour out contempt in their speech and their writings on anyone who dares to believe in illusions like God or creation or whatever. It worked for Voltaire and it's working for these guys because unfortunately there are a lot of people who are afraid of what other people will think of them if they don't conform to whatever sort of religious belief happens to be politically correct. They create an atmosphere of contempt. That's how Voltaire did it too. Anyway, Voltaire used to say, quote, once we have destroyed the Jesuits, we shall have it all our own way with the Catholic Church. Now, that wasn't the term he used uh, for the church. Anyway, close quote. Then when the Jesuits were actually destroyed, Voltaire said, quote, In 20 years, there will be nothing left of the church, close quote. Commenting on this statement, Dr. Warren Carroll says, It was the most chillingly accurate evil prophecy in history. 
20 years from 1773 was 1793, the year of the terror in France, when the French Revolution abolished by law, first the Christian era, then the worship of God. Close quote. Okay. What about the moral atmosphere in the years prior to the revolution? The society was bathed in attacks on Catholicism from clowns like Voltaire, and the aristocracy was immersed in pornographic literature and immoral behavior. And the press was, in a very large measure, under the control of scoundrels. On top of that, there was a financial crisis. Uh, France had financed uh, a war of independence for a certain country that had 13 colonies, and then they were broke. Uh, at this time. So anyway, the king, Louis XVI, called for an assembly of elected advisors to be drawn from the nobility, the clergy, and the commoners, something that hadn't been done for almost 200 years, to deal with this crisis. And the Freemasons and their allies used that opportunity to move into action and seize the reign of power. So that's all the prelude. Revolution. We don't have anywhere near the amount of time to consider different stages the revolution passed through. So for the purpose of this sermon, we're just going to take a quick look at some of the most outrageous events. We'll consider four categories just to get an overview, all right? We'll be briefly to consider demoralization, first category. Second category is dechristianization and desolation. Third category is depopulation. And finally, destruction. So demoralization, dechristianization and desolation, depopulation, destruction. Demoralization. A key element and the strategy of the revolutionary leaders was to corrupt the people on a massive, massive scale. Why? Why corruption? Pope Leo XIII explains, quote, Since, generally speaking, no one obeys crafty and clever men so submissively as those whose soul is weakened and broken down by the domination of the passions, some Freemasons have plainly determined and proposed that the multitude should be purposely satiated with the boundless vice, because when this has been done, the people would easily come under their power and authority. Close quote, the vicar of Christ. Now, the revolutionary leaders themselves confirmed this on many occasions. They plainly stated the primary purpose of the riots they deliberately stirred up at the beginning of the revolution was a corrupting effect they had on the general public. As one of the leaders pointed out, quote, before, before this, the people were not sufficiently accustomed to crime, and in order to accustom them to it, they must be practiced in it. Close quote. They legalized divorce and at the same time listed the courtesans to publicly promote sexual immorality. The effect was indescribable. Here's a very highly edited uh, account of the situation. Very highly edited. Quote, the tidal wave of sexual anarchy swept over the whole nation. Divorce rates skyrocketed so high that their number surpassed that of marriages. The number of foundlings born out of wedlock and abandoned soared. There was a similar increase in the number of working girls whose disorders and shameless behavior surpassed in heinousness all that can be conceived. Not only grown-ups, but even children behaved in a scandalous way. The result, restraints of sexual instincts were abandoned. Abominations were openly performed. Festivals were accompanied by public abominations. Young men and women grew openly licentious, and ribaldry became a fashion. All else was forgotten in the lust of pleasure. Women's clothing became completely immodest and pagan. Women passed from hand to hand. The dregs of society resemble Sodom and Gomorrah. And side by side with this common licentiousness, sadistic actions become daily occurrences. In brief, debauchery reached its maximum. 
close quote. The great St. Maximilian Kolbe, warrior against Freemasonry, spoke this technique, quote, the Freemasons follow this principle above all. Catholicism can be overcome not by logical argument, but by corrupted morals, close quote. Freemasons follow this principle above all. Catholicism can be overcome not by logical argument, but by corrupted morals. Because, as St. Maximilian also pointed out, quote, the Masonic rulers destroy all teaching about God, especially Catholic teaching, close quote. So as the morals of the nation corrupted, the field was clear for the revolutionaries to turn to dechristianization and desolation. Very early in the revolution, the government confiscated church property, suppressed the religious orders of men and women, and in 1790, the clergy were required to take an oath of loyalty to the civil constitution of clergy, which put the entire control of the church in France under the government. In order to make the church democratic, the bishops and parish priests were now elected officials, and even atheists and Jews could vote for who the bishop or the priest ought to be. Pope Pius VI forbid the clergy to take the oath. About 52% of the priests were faithful and refused to swear the oath of loyalty. Bishop Talleyrand, however, took the oath and consecrated other priests, constitutional bishops, which immediately resulted in a schismatic French church, very similar to the situation in China right now with the Patriotic Association. It's, very, it's a parallel for a lot of reasons. Then things started really heating up. A literal war of extermination was launched against the bishops and priests who had refused the oath. Priests were held captive in several Parisian monasteries that had already been emptied after the suppression of the religious orders. On September 2nd, 1792, the revolutionary leadership set out a mob of hired assassins that were paid for by public funds of the city of Paris to deal with these priests. So these are public servants. These are civil servants. The scene was basically the same at each location. Uh, at the Carmelite monastery, the killers ordered all the prisoners to be brought forward two by two, and asked if they had taken the oath to accept the civil constitution of the clergy. Each priest said no and refused to take it. Not a single bishop or priest took the oath. It's absolutely heroic. As each pair was condemned, they were shoved down the stairs, hacked, stabbed, or beaten to death. They killed that day almost 200 priests. And then for the next five days, they killed more than 1,400 people, all by hand, And during all this, the assassins fell into torture, rape, and cannibalism. It's indescribable. There's cannibalism all the time as you read these these things. It's unbelievably diabolical. Attacks spread out from Paris. One of the most prominent leaders, a strange, quivering little Freemasonic monster named Marat, he foamed at the mouth when he got excited, was not happy that only 1,400 people had been murdered. He wrote, quote, now, this is a quote from Murat himself. Murat states openly that 40,000 heads must be knocked off to ensure the success of the revolution. Close quote. How's that for leadership? Murat himself ended up being stabbed to death in his bathtub. The leadership had him embalmed and laid out in a church and worshipped as a god. With people kneeling there, blaspheming our Lord and crying out, O sacred heart of Murat, a type of the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place gets worse. The government abolished the monarchy, proclaims the republic and guillotined the king and queen. And then instead of using B.C. and A.D., they abolished the Christian era by numbering the years starting with the abolition of the monarchy. Uh, I think nowadays they use B.C.E. and C.E. 
Anyway, the months were changed. The weeks were changed uh, from seven days to ten. You've got to get rid of this idea of creation. And, and, of course, Sunday was abolished. The revolutionary leaders commanded the, design, the sign proclaiming that, quote, death is an eternal sleep. The sign had death is an eternal sleep. Uh, it had to be placed over the gates of the seminaries, the cemeteries, excuse me. So you had to have death is an eternal sleep over the gates of the cemeteries. One commentator, a uh, French commentator, dryly noted this amounted to the closing of paradise, purgatory, and hell by the police. Then the revolutionaries declared November 10th, 1793, in their crazy calendar, this is 20 Brumaire, year two. I might be mispronouncing. I'm sorry. Anyway, they declared it to be the festival of reason. Inside Notre Dame Cathedral, they build this wooden and cardboard mountain with a small Greek temple on top of it. So it's in the nave with this mountain and this temple with busts on it, Rousseau, Voltaire, Ben Franklin. And uh, in a completely asinine ceremony, uh, an actress clothed in the tricolor robe playing the goddess reason climbs up the mountain to the temple on top, and then evidently everybody's supposed to applaud. I, I'm not sure why. Another type of the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. Other cathedrals in France got the same sort of treatment. Quote, Everywhere in Paris and the provinces, a perfect orgy of blasphemy and desecration now began. Bacchanalian feasts took place in the churches. Triumphal carriages carrying streetwalkers dressed in chasubles passed through the streets. Crucifixes and breviaries were cast into bonfires amid cries of, Perish forever, the memories of the priest. Perish forever, Christian superstition. Long live the sublime religion of nature. Close quote. Leaders ordered that constitutional priests get married, forbid the wearing of the cassock in public. In Lyon, a festival was held, which was preceded by going around town and smashing all the crucifixes, statues, and religious artwork. Uh, we don't do that. We just pull them off the courthouse lawns and off the walls. I don't think we smash them. Anyway, these fools are packing around. They've got this couch sort of thing. They're packing around this bust of another dead revolutionary who somehow became a divinity. And they're followed in this procession by a donkey. And the donkey has a miter on, and he's got a cope draped over him. And uh, there's a crucifix, a Bible, and a book of the four Gospels tied to his tail. Behind him... Is marching a whole troop of revolutionaries with the sacred vessels, uh, uh, monstrances and chalices and sabori and whatnot that they've looted out of the churches. And behind them, a mob of howling uh, people. Then the leaders kneel before the bust and pray, among other things, to the dead man, God of our salvation, behold prostrate at thy feet, the nation beseeching thy forgiveness, blah, 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 close quote. They burn the crucifix in the Gospels and then had the donkey drink out of a chalice. Now, I tended to, to top it off by having the donkey some, eat some hosts, but thanks be to God, a rainstorm ended it before they got to that satanic part of this whole evil service. Within the next three weeks, the churches throughout France are closed. Whoever asked to open them was liable to rest, immediate rest. Giving any hospitality, food or shelter to a priest that hadn't taken the oath to the civil constitution became a crime punishable by death. Possession of any and every sacred heart badge or sign was considered to be proof in itself of anti-revolutionary activities and became a crime punishable by death. Depopulation. Depopulation was an essential part of the revolutionary's plan. One revolutionary pamphlet states that depopulation was indispensable because the calculation had been made that the French population was in excess of the resources of the soil. Sounds mighty familiar to me. The leaders agreed in general that about 8 million Frenchmen should be allowed to live. That, that would be the carrying capacity of France. 
Now, this isn't a country of the, at that time of 25 million people. In other words, the general opinion of the leaders was they need to eliminate somewhere around 17 million people. So we'll keep a third, get rid of two-thirds. Right now, with, with our elites, you know, the, the, the people that go to the, to the population conferences, the UN and whatnot, they think the carrying capacity, the, the word, last time I bothered to look into it, I don't keep real close track, but it's two billion. They think the carrying capacity of people on Earth is two billion. So they keep in the same proportion, because what is it? There's a little over six billion of us or so, so I guess four billion of us are supposed to get off the planet by sundown when they finally get around to this sort of attitude. Anyway, thanks be to God. Uh, in terms of population, they didn't achieve their goals, but it wasn't for lack of trying. It was really for lack of technology. Even though the guillotine worked so continuously that the streets of Paris, Lyon, Toulon, Nantes, and other provincial, provincial cities ran, literally ran with the blood of the victims, they just couldn't kill that efficiently. You know, they'd line people up, start shooting grape shot, and then they'd go out there and start hacking them, little kids, you know, so forth. Still, the estimated death toll for right here in this time is just over a million men, women, and children slaughtered. Destruction. Quote, All highly educated men were persecuted. The treasures of science, art, and literature were destroyed. Politeness in all forms was to be destroyed. It had now become necessary to assume a rough and boorish manner and to present an uncultivated appearance. In a word, it was now not merely a war on nobility, on wealth, on industry, on art and on intellect, it was a war on civilization. France was returned to a state of savagery. Insane as the project may seem, we must recognize it nevertheless to be the logical outcome of the desire for absolute equality. Close quote. That's really worth meditating on. Where do we go when we when we are going to start talking about equality? But that's a topic for a different day. Okay, we took a quick look at the situation of the church and the state before the French Revolution. Then we quickly consider the revolution itself in terms of demoralization, dechristianization and desolation, then depopulation and finally destruction. All right. Remember that the French Revolution is a type of the great apostasy. It has clear shadowings of the abomination of desolation. In other words, if we want to have some idea of what the real great apostasy will be like, it's likely to have many of the features of the French Revolution without excluding any of the other features we've considered over the years. Of course, the difference will be it won't be limited to France. It will be a global-scale phenomenon. Let's close by considering the condition that France was left in after all this mayhem. Now, this is taken from a report by one of the leading revolutionaries himself. <clears throat> Quote, The national treasury was entirely empty. Not a sou remained. Public revenues were nil. No plan of finance existed. There was not a sack of corn in the granaries, nor even a single grain of wheat. Hospitals were without revenues, without resources or administration. Public relief of every kind was reduced almost to nothing. The canals were ruined, many bridges broken down, the roads impassable. Communications of all kinds had become extremely difficult. Public instruction no longer existed. There was oblivion to all decency. The army was without discipline, without provisions, without pay, without clothing, without equipment. Close quote. As one commentator noted, by this point, the revolutionaries had left France bread white, ruined, and ready to surrender to the first saver who should present himself. And we'll pick up at that point next week.